0: You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. Hey guys, Robert here. On this episode, Sean and Brian from KCSL join Mike Pritz and I. Brian and Sean are U.S. Air Force pararescue, also known as PJs, with about five years of experience from each in several deployments. Both have a passion for medicine and rescue. You'll hear that in their voice as we talk about the profession of being a PJ, advancement in medicine taken from lessons learned on the battlefield, and they'll leave you with some parting tips on what it takes to be a PJ and to set yourself up for success post-military. You can find them on Instagram under the username at k.c.s.l. It's time to sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. I get a lot of questions, by the way, about PJs. And every time I post something on Instagram or social media, they, uh, you know, I get a lot of young people that were saying, they ask questions like, what does it take? What do I need to do to prepare? How, how do I get into this field and all of that? People don't really understand it. So there's this whole thing about what all goes into it. And I think maybe that'd be a great start for each of you to kind of tell a little, little bit about your background. And then, of course... What made you go into the field of pararescue?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to kick it off. So my name is Brian. Um, I went to school, high school in Northern Virginia, Broad Run uh, High School up there. And the way that things were going in high school definitely didn't have me heading down like an education path after high school. And it was good uh, because obviously like there is that pressure to kind of you know track college, you know, even if you don't know what you want to do, you got to go that way, kind of. And I was blessed with, like, hey, maybe you should just join the military, you know, and like we'll learn some discipline. You know, I was a pretty rebellious kid, didn't have much character going for me. So, <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. I did an early sign up. Um, and at that point, like, sports were a big part of my life. Uh, swimming, wrestling were kind of the the two big ones, and. Those had already instilled some sort of um, love for kind of pushing myself, you know, the mental capacity side of things, but yeah. also uh, physicality, getting getting rough and stuff. And um, I I signed up for a computer job initially. Found out I didn't like computers, which was great because then I went back, um, became a Christian around the same time, and I was like, I told you, Robert, in the bio, like,
0: yeah. you
1: know, what would Jesus do in the military? And then I saw that others may live at, on the post to prepare rescue, and I was like, yep. That's what I want to do. So, just so I, just so
0: you know, Mike Pritz, actually, and I was, you know, if he were on, we could talk about him now, but when he saw that, he says, you know, actually, I think that he would have freed the oppressed, just just so you're clear. Oh, uh, yeah, okay.
2: <laughs> I like that. Yeah.
0: And I said, yeah, yeah as, a, as an 18 uh, Delta, probably. Push. Yeah, probably as an 18 Delta. So. Yeah.
2: <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So, I'll jump in here. My story is actually pretty similar. I think a lot of PJ's stories are similar of how he kind of got into it. Um, when I was in high school, again, academia wasn't really my strong suit. Um, I knew that I wasn't really going to be headed towards the college route and didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I kind of you know, had a little bit of a gap year, um, again, just kind of messed around as a, as a kid, as a teenager, and then had a mentor who was an 18 Delta in Special Forces. Okay. He started telling me about stories, jumping out of planes, you know traveling the world being on battlefields, saving lives and it yeah. just struck a chord within me i went to the recruiter the army recruiter first and i said hey like, sign me up i want to be special forces 18 delta and he's like all right awesome here's the paperwork blah 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 and then it got to the point where he said how old are you i was 17 at the time he got, you got you have to be 23 to get an 18x contract um and so he tried to Give me the whole sign up for the infantry, and then when you're 23, go over to Special Forces, and I wasn't having it. So being from San Diego, I was obviously uh, aware of the SEAL teams and everything like that. Went and talked to the Navy guys, didn't really like what they were selling, found out about Pararescue just kind of randomly, and it was everything that I wanted in the brochure signed up and the rest is history
0: oh, that's awesome you know and it's funny because back in the day you couldn't actually even go into special forces unless you were the rank of e4 so oh, wow. they, they just really kind of modified that in some ways in terms of that you need the maturity is what they're trying right. to uh to yeah. put there not not that somebody 17 years old is not mature but sure. let's face it when you look back you're you right. were probably not that mature at that age as you were. Oh no, you know, no at way!
1: <laughs> yeah. Especially no, yeah, I remember. I remember going through in-doc, you know, and and I was going with people who were ten plus years older than me, right? You know, and things, and they they had really good control over their emotions, yeah. You know, but the littlest thing would take me off. Like it would. I was a roller coaster of emotion, but I was kind of in this place where what else did i have you know if i if i was gonna quit then what you right. know like there's i was too dumb to quit i was like yeah this is i have to do this like
0: well, you know tell, what tell us going. a little bit about the uh, the training because i think a lot of people too are confused about what are the differences between say uh going as a army medic versus a corpsman in the marine corps you know versus say an 18 delta which is a little bit more advanced and i know at least with the uh, the rangers you know, they, they end up going through the 18 Delta course now uh, because of the war and getting a lot of that type of training uh, so that they're, you know, more battle ready and, and probably some of the most high speed um, medical uh, individuals, you know, because of that type of training, at least in the Army, I'm talking about, mm-hmm. instead of being a conventional, just reg- regular medic. Um, and I don't yeah. want to put it as regular as being a bad thing, but you know what I mean. So what what yeah. are some of those differences there? so.
2: I think it all comes down to mission set, and as I'm sure you and everyone else in the military understands, every unit, every job specialty, every MOS has their own mission that they are trained for, equipped for, prepped for, whatever. Uh, so, you know, the 68 Whiskey guys, the, yeah. the yeah. normal uh, infantry medics, or like a Navy corpsman, those guys are with the infantry, they're, you know just hudding hut, around, and they're ready. They're ready to perform medicine when bad stuff happens to their infantry brothers and sisters. And, um, and you know, that's great. They they know what they need to know. They're good at it, and we need those guys. The Special Forces dudes, they're going to be on their own for a long time. Right. Um, out in places where, um, you know, hospital care isn't really available to them. So they get that long-term care, the more advanced knowledge of, anatomy, physiology, pharmacology, all of the things that they are required to know to achieve mission success. Uh, Rangers, again, Ryan, uh, Brian can speak more on the ranger side of the house. He he uh, was with those guys for a while. Um, but pararescue, with our mission set, we are, are required to know paramedicine, so mostly just trauma-based emergency medicine and rescue. And so that's our bread and butter. I think we learn a good amount of uh, medicine. We're all licensed paramedics and then get, you know, the military kind of upgrades us as far as skills and things. Right. But we, they really harp on the rescue capabilities, which is what we bring to the fight as PJs.
1: To that, you know, knowing what I know now about our mission of just, you know, going in as an enabler. Cause, and that's the thing, like when we're, when we're on the ground, at least um, at the lower tier level, you know, Mm -hmm. we're, we're enabling. You were attached again, like I was attached with the Rangers and you have to have a very open mind to kind of what's going on. Um, we, is, this, is this Mike? That's Mike. Yeah, hey,
0: guys. Sorry we, about Mike. That. Hey, how's it going? We, we've just been uh, talking bad about you, Mike. Brian talked about the, uh, you know, Jesus would have been a paramedic, and I reminded him of what you said, that, that probably he would have freed the oppressed, actually.
3: Obviously, Jesus was more concerned with freeing the oppressed than just a <laughs> limited number of people.
1: <laughs> That's good. I like it. But, yeah, so what I was saying is, you know, knowing, like, the, the role of, of an enabler. Now that I've experienced that, I look back on the training, you know, through indoct- indoctrination. You know, you know, they're trying to get you to think a certain way. They're trying to open your mind up to, you know, more than just yourself. And that was key. That is a key foundation to have as a PJ uh, because with rescue, when you start mis- mixing rescue tactics and medicine, and you're calling yourself through the technical rescue specialist you need to be able to take so many things into account to to perform your job effectively um so that's that is definitely a unique side of being a pj is kind of like an all-encompassing you know master of none kind of jack-of-all-trades thing
0: we just talked about a core special forces you know army versus navy medic versus pj but also pj's are primarily to help down pilots, right? Uh, So they could be in so many different circumstances, uh, whether it's over a body of water, whether it's over a body of land, whether it's deep in enemy territory, Mm. whatever the case may be. So you have to have that type of training that is, depending upon the the situation of the terrain, as well as uh, understanding trauma. And trauma is a a big portion of that because, of course, you're going to be the first responder there.
2: Right. Yeah. yeah that, that is why we were created, pararescuing, is to go after downed pilots. Um, and then, you know, we pararescuing, not myself, this is a little before my time, but in Vietnam and then the early stages of Afghanistan, we're starting to do the Kazavak mission um, and then in, embedding with special forces or ranger teams, SEAL teams, whatever. And thankfully, the guys that came before, Brian and I, did a good job. So uh, they kind of paved the way for us. But absolutely, what, what we primarily train... 4 is the down pilot scenario, wherever it may be parachuting in, diving in, whatever. That's that is exactly what we train for. Yeah. And again, I, I think that just goes back to everyone's got their mission set and right. they th- you know, th- that's that's what the military is about. Everyone has these specialties and they're required to be proficient and experts in those given specialties to achieve mission success.
1: Yeah, and I think it's worth saying, you know, well, I'm sure we have, you know, the Ranger Medics listening in. They've been to Socom, amazing medic course. And uh, personally, I wish I, I had or could go through that, you know, and, and PJ's used to. Uh, but you have medics across all the services who are listening in. And we definitely, like, don't I, – I don't meet them and, like, try to compare, you know, against them. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to do, like, a trauma assessment with them, kind of see the different SOPs that we have in procedures and stuff. But – it's just you can't like meet a, like a ranger medic and be like yeah like I'm a faster sket like look at my sketco speed you know how fast I can package a patient it's just yeah it's it's relative you know they have their things that they're extremely good at so do we and I really like to see how we complement each other because we do very well um, the two. The two sides of the house.
3: So. I, I think that goes to show just how far we've come in a joint force, though, over the last, mm, yeah. I mean, 25, 30 years. I, I would say that in the 90s, I, I used to run missions all of, out of Ensley Air Base in Turkey, all over northern Iraq. You know, joint with PJ's, right? So it, it wasn't it wasn't a neither or type of mission. Uh, when we were running um, the no fly zone over northern Iraq after the first Gulf mm-hmm. of War in 1991 all the down-pilot missions were conducted with a joint mission between Green Berets and PJs. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, if you, if you, you, you mentioned going all the way back to Vietnam, I think that the evolution, um, maybe not as much post Vietnam, but definitely post desert one, um, has been toward that, that joint combined special operations forces.
2: Right. Yeah. And I think, as you said, it's a testament to, uh, you know, joint capability, interoperability. And I think, Unfortunately, men have had to die for people to realize that we work well together and that in these capacities, the mission is, is better off if we all work together and everyone uses their individual skill sets to, uh, you know, create a better outcome overall. Yeah, Doesn't I, mean, mean- I know if, if we would never be tasked for it, but if we were to seize an airfield, we'd probably want Rangers with us. Or whatever. Yeah, That's no, ab- absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
3: Obviously, each of the forces has their own specialty, right? And I don't know that yeah. I don't know that the ranger regiment would be uh, the one we go to for you know airfield seizure and takedown anymore. I mean, they they've really really evolved to be more of a of a I, I think strategic strike pre- uh, precision sure, right, absolutely strike type of uh, force now, as when I was a kid. That's what they were, man. They were airfield seizure and takedown. That, that was their specialty. If you look at Grenada, Panama, things like that. Right. Um, but obviously, we have our specialty. Uh, and, and But I think a lot of, man, I'm going to get off on a tangent, Robert. A lot <laughs> of it comes down to funding. If you look at, you, mm-hmm. you know, whatever whatever the flavor is uh, for soft it, it, is where the, where the funding goes. Right now, it's JSOC, obviously, over yep. the past, past several years of counterterrorism. Um, and I think if you read Millie's comments late last week, uh, he talked about uh, how how the next war is going to be evolving, and SOF isn't going to be able to to get us out of this one. So yeah. I, I think that, I think that we'll see that shift, and as funding shifts, everybody's going to try to find relevance. Uh, so as you as you as you seek for relevance, I think SF guys always go back to build partner capacity. I mean, it's what we've tried to do over the last five or six years coming out of this CT type of environment in, in Afghanistan Iraq is to get back to our base of doing unconventional warfare bill partner capacity. You guys obviously will focus on, on your core core skills and core mission sets, but as funding drives us toward that next um, kind of evolving battlefield, all of us are going to try to, to, to get some of that funding because with that comes training, equipment, skill development and things like that. Right. It's just, be, it'll be yeah, interesting absolutely. to see, I think how it develops and what, what we all try to get a piece of. Mm -hmm.
0: It's a perfect segue, actually, to how even the medicine on the battlefield has changed as well, because when you start thinking about... In the very beginning of time, I mean, everybody in the military had trained on trauma, uh, at least those from the medical field. And we had that that carried over from previous wars that went into the private sector. And I think the same is true now. There has been a rapid development as far as trauma within the battlefield operations that has gone over to first responders back here in the private sector, you know, in the, in the civilian side, as well as even in the hospital rooms and trauma centers. Uh, at major hospitals, because you learn so much right there on the battlefield, and you're not always exposed to that type of trauma here in the civilian side. So walk us through some of the things that you guys have picked up, even over your short career in the last five years.
1: Yeah, so one of the big things is the just epidemiology on the battlefield, you know, understanding kind of what is killing people out there due to gunshot wounds, blast injuries, secondary, tertiary, you know, hits from, mass explosions and impact injuries uh and one of the biggest things that's been harped on over at least my time in the military is controllable hemorrhage you know we have we have proximal injuries you know arterial or even a a bad venous bleed and how how are we going to train you know the people closest to point of injury on how to save a life there and you know you have you have organizations like north american rescue swat t um, all these guys who are making amazing devices, uh, to, to easily apply, you know, you have your,
0: the tourniquet, your infantry yeah. guys,
1: exactly. Yeah. The tourniquet. You know, the wind lists you have, um, the stretch wrap tuck, like stuff like that, you know, that people across so many spectrums know how to use that stuff and they're all carrying it. Yeah. And I mean, and it just, it's, it's crazy just getting like that capability closer to point of injury has decreased that epidemiology, like that death on the battlefield significantly. Um, so that's that's one of the coolest things kind of we've seen progress as time has gone over the past five years. If I could jump in here though,
2: I'd like to go back to what you talked on, which is like the epidemiology will drive it. And you know, that's awesome. And one of the good things that has come out of the wars we've been in is the advances in battlefield medicine and then transitioning to to uh, civilian medicine here, but I don't think it should be looked over that to learn all this, we had to take a lot of casualties. Yeah, and yeah. if you look at the medicine that's advanced, it's that it's that first hours, the immediate treatments, and then beyond that, it's, it's prosthesis, has advanced, incredible amounts. But this is because we lost a lot of men and women, um, and a lot of them needlessly going back to the tourniquet. Everyone carries a tourniquet. Everyone should know how to put a tourniquet on. But still, as a PJ, I see it all the time. Sure, you saw it downrange, Brian. Is people are not putting tourniquets on correctly. I think just it's the little things that save lives in the long run, and we just need we need to keep learning from our mistakes, try to make less mistakes, and hopefully look more um, look into the future more than retrospectively when we start thinking about how to advance battlefield medicine.
1: Yeah, and I think it's so important to kind of drive those big points with percentages and numbers home. So just just off – so from 2001 to 2011, the Military Times posted that 4,596 combat deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan were potentially survivable. So like you're starting a lesson with somebody who joined the military three months ago and they're deploying in two months – with like that and they're like oh my gosh yeah. like i need to learn this procedure right you know and they are going to go out with an effective now a very effective tourniquet and potentially
3: save their buddy's life and it's going to bring that number down
2: absolutely yeah. and something else that came out of go ahead Mike.
3: no i was going to say i, I attended a, a conference this past weekend in chicago and one of the speakers at the conference was a physician's assistant from the 75th ranger regiment and uh, and his whole platform is talking ex- exactly about what you guys are talking about. If you look at the evolution of of trauma care over the past several years, uh, with with things uh, different companies developed, like those you know one headed tourniquets, the CAT, and some other things. Um, you know, he, he's got this. Uh, his platform is called Zero Preventable Deaths. I mean, if you if you go into Twitter or any social media and you hashtag ZPD or Zero Preventable Deaths, you'll you'll Mike, find what, a lot what's of. What's his name? Uh, Andrew Fisher. Okay. Uh, and I, he's in medical school right now down in, in Texas, but, uh, that's awesome. so, so he, the, the way he evolves his talk is, is that, you know, if you go way back to when we were young and, and in the eighties, when we taught people first aid, um, we taught you that if, or we were taught that if you put a tourniquet, that's your absolute last resort, you have all these other things before you go to a tourniquet yeah. and, and then what do you do? I mean, you tell the guy, if you go to tourniquet, you're going to lose the limb. Right. Um, and right. Then you, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, you marked the forehead with a T and you went on to the next victim. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it's not that's that's the first thing we go to. It's the first thing we tell people now. So on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan, so many lives have been saved because they are preventable by using these these new newer developed types of tourniquets that that's I mean, you could again, they're made to put on yourself with one hand. If you lose a leg, yep. you lose an arm. You can do that with with your other hand. Um, and, and, that you know, that, that, that goes on, whereas platform really is, is we've done it very well in the military and the military historically has been on the cutting edge of, of developments for technology and innovations for civilian forces all, all over the place. And, and now, if you look at that in civilian trauma care, uh, people in the United States don't know that, hey, if, if you're in a car accident or if you're in some type of a, a traumatic event, the first thing you should do is it put on a tourniquet to slow mm-hmm. the flow of bleeding because again a lot of these people they don't they don't know they don't believe so I mean I, I carry a tourniquet in my car both of my yeah, cars yeah. Have, have tourniquets in them um, but that's because of my background because you guys' background you, you you know that and this evolves on his, his talk goes on further into to group o, a whole blood product which we use on a battlefield to save lives right yeah. I, I mean and and that's something that really hasn't made it into civilian trauma yet is that how you can push initial whole blood product whole blood product onto somebody who's experienced a catastrophic blood loss yeah, and, and it's not going to to kill them with antibody issues and everything. We do it on the battlefield. I was telling Robert a story. I don't know if it's appropriate for this so you have to take it out, but um, I had some guys in uh, Central African Republic a, a few years ago who had been on live ambush patrol going after um, individuals from the LRA, uh, Joseph Coney's organization over there, and they in- interdicted a, a A squad of people moving they had a wounded female young LRA soldier on the ground and she was dying Uh, and they took a a um unit of a group o blood off of a team member and they put it into that uh now um prisoner that was captured and and being treated on a battlefield kept her alive while doing interrogation uh and transporting her in a local taxi out of the jungle where they got out to a road, they waved down a taxi, and they transported her to the uh, uh, a local medical facility where her life was saved. But ultimately, it was by that, I mean, they took a unit of blood off of somebody who was out on the ground with them and put it into that human uh, to, to keep them alive. And it, the kinds of things like that that are going on in combat zones today are the kinds of things that Crazy. I think help evolve medical technology back home.
2: A- absolutely, yeah. Brian and I have some experience in that as well. Um, the walking blood bank that you're talking about is becoming a huge asset to operators on the ground, us in the sky or on the ground, wherever we may be. And I know Brian's pushed, uh, blood on patients. i push pushed blood. Uh, you want to talk about your story, Brian? I know you had it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Decisions. Um, so you have the programs, you know, having whole blood in the field, like the Rolo program where they check a an O doesn't matter, their RH, you know, but they want to see their titer, their, ant, their antigen level. And if they're O low titer, they're, they're an O donor, part of the ROLO program, and able to be recalled for that, that field transfusion. So if you can get him to the higher level facility, a lot of times it's just a forward surgical team who's out there, and that's where the walking blood bank comes into play. And you had somebody who showed up at the FOB or wherever they were, and they typed everybody. And when you do that, you know, okay, you, you have your Elden card, you know the types of everyone, you have like a nice little spreadsheet. So if you have like a, an A neg guy who comes in, you recall all the ANEG guys, A Neg guys, and you already did your like HIV test as well. This is actually what we did. So uh, we were in Iraq for a strip alert, airborne alert deployment, and you just like strictly PR. But there was an incident, and Dustoff went out to pick up five guys. who was uh, green on blue uh, to bring them back in. And they, they had their hands full. Unfortunately, it was, uh, it was one medic, and he had a traumatic arrest and a GSW through the femur uh, in his aircraft. So he had the GSW with the femur doing CPR on his buddy while he was, like, tightening the tourniquet on the guy's leg. Uh, he just got dealt a very bad hand of cards that day. Um, but he shows up. And I start working on the traumatic arrest, getting an I.O. The the physician cracks his chest, starts doing a cardiac massage. And the physician was awesome. He made he made the call right there. He's like, "Hey, we need to focus our efforts towards the guy who who had the G.S.W. through his femur, because that arterial bleed we we can salvage that." Uh, there was some morphine pushed on him that took his pressure down. He was unconscious, so they rushed him into surgery. And you have general surgeons doing vascular surgery, and that can get really bloody. So it was myself, another PJ, my team commander, and our IDMT, and we had brought a bunch of field transfusion kits out. So we, we asked them all to come over to us, all the field transfusion kits, and then we did a recall of all APOS. And we typed everybody, and we started, we started drawing blood, and we drew 10 units um, in the FST, and just kept shuffling them into the OR. And that guy, we pre- we replaced his volume three times
0: wow. during
1: surgery. Um, but they got the graph and the shunt in place, and they uh, got the CCAT team to take him out. Um, it was phenomenal.
0: That is amazing. It's awesome to be a part of that. I mean, you think about what we just described, Mike, you talking about the whole tourniquet thing and putting the uh, tea on their forehead. Uh, God, I remember that so clearly. And then you think about what you just described right there, how fast medicine has advanced. I mean, well, I guess over a period of, uh, what, 20 years or something like that, when you think about the time period. But when I think it's a lot more rapid now. I think that... you guys are learning techniques on the fly. You're you're creating different tools like the one-handed tourniquet. You're creating Uh, opportunities to help your uh, peers within the field save those lives. Those things are then being used like North American rescue and those types of organizations like you're describing are applying those within the LEOs, within um, the uh, hospitals, telling people on this side, get basic life uh, saving skill uh, training, carry a tourniquet with you at all times like Mike does in a car. You know, it's just really evolved and it's really fascinating to see how quickly and my lifetime, it's, it's evolved.
2: Yeah. It's been great. I think, uh, being a part of it. And then from being in the military, still seeing outside a lot of the advancements being made that the transition from the battlefield to civilian medicine, a lot of the time it's veterans pushing for that. Um, whether it be a physician or, you know, some, some medic or, uh, you know, a shooter who's Going into business on the outside, and he's developed a product that can potentially save lives, and it's spreading everywhere. Or just the mindset that all of us have based on um, our experiences carrying tourniquets in cars. Uh, I personally carry a whole car, a little kit, you know, and and um, knowing how to use it, and knowing how I to just, use it, not just <laughs> throwing it in the exactly. back of the car. I mean, you've got to yeah, know how to properly cool. apply it. Exactly, sticking it on someone's not going to help. You got to stop the blood flow. Yeah, no. You can't put it around the neck. <laughs>
1: yeah, it doesn't stop yeah a, you can't stop a head bleed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah can. It, can. it might stop he a can. head bleed, but it's also going to stop your <the old> oxygen <laughs>
0: exchange up there. Yeah. So, Brian, you're but, creating a tool along along that line, Sean. I mean, Brian, you're creating, as I understand it, a tool yourself, wasn't it? <laughs> yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Sean and I had a contract that we were gonna try to
0: there you avoid go.
1: talking about it. Oh, you're um, gonna
0: avoid talking
1: about um, it. No, not not for like uh, you know, business privacy reasons. But yeah, no, it's um it's simply a an emergency cutting tool that I think can do a lot of good in the tactical realm, breacher realm. And maybe eventually someday, like your average Joe, can go to Home Depot and pick it up. You know, if they have to cut a pipe at their house or something like that. But essentially, it's just a magnesium matchlit rod that you can, uh, you can just emergency cut with, and just strike the end of it and then go to work with a plunge cut. And down the line, we're looking at uh, producing like longer burns. Like wider burn surface surface area, so you can like use it as a lightsaber and just chop through everything. But it's exciting, you know. I'm really yeah. It's cool to know that I'm kind of on. I'm pushing something that hasn't really been a thing yet, you know. Yeah. Um. It's exciting. No, but it's it is also exciting. So.
0: But but that's yeah. So I can I can cut that whole piece out or not. But I mean, it's up yeah, to you. Yeah.
1: No, you you can leave it. I think I think would be
0: good. Yeah, I think I think what you're uh, describing though is that you're taking real life situations and applying it uh, and creating a practical tool or resource that can be used by people within your profession. And that's how those tourniquet one handed tourniquets came about. Those, That's how those other tools that are now in the kits came about. It's by people like we just talked about here that have applied um, certain techniques on the battlefield or, first responder type of things that said, Hey, this would be a much better opportunity. It's not necessarily to go out there and make money. That's a, that's a byproduct of it. You know I mean? You'll get an opportunity to do that, but it's about saving lives and about applying what you believe to be your passion and putting that into your work. That's great.
2: And I think, I think veterans are a unique breed in that aspect because we're always looking forward. We're trying to use tools that we, tools and skills that we learned uh, while being in the military when we get out. Um, and I was, Brian and I had this conversation earlier. We live in the UK right now. We're stationed here in the UK. And they've had, unfortunately, a few uh, pretty horrible attacks recently. Um, the Ariana Grande concert was bombed. The people were run over on the Westminster Bridge. And if there was a PJ there, uh, an infantryman there, people who are trained to recognize threats and react to them, I think they could have saved lives that didn't need to be lost. And that's kind of why we started our little project, KCSL. Uh Um, And it's really just, it it was the idea of it was to start like a movement of of veterans, of rescue-minded individuals, of people who are able to respond to horrible instances in which their skills that they learned in the military or just through, uh, you know, autodidactics just wanting to learn themselves can really affect outcomes for patients.
0: So you don't yeah, take right? out your uh, you don't take out your iPhone and start filming the situation so that's exactly. You
1: can become... <laughs> <You> know, sometimes <laughs> yeah, that's definitely uh that's always the first option but then there might be some better ones, you know, Yeah. That. You know, KCSL is a movement first. You know, that's that's why we started it. We are always looking for awesome pictures and stuff that we can share like tips, quotes, whatever. But we're we're trying to drive a point home is that like the the culture that we live in, no matter where, like the e- economical, like political, whatever the environment is, the threat is increasing in everyone's country, and we want to share just little, little pieces of wisdom, you know, that can that we've learned, that we've been blessed with learning, uh, but as we've had these these things poured into us, we want to pour them back out and and share with the public. Uh, Instagram is kind of where we're focusing now, but as things progress, you know, we're kind of using business to vector us, you know, provide the resources for us to go out and and educate, you know, and train. Uh, yeah, so maybe it doesn't have to be that inf- that infantryman uh, who's there at the Westminster Bridge, but it was the infantryman who trained somebody, you know, a civilian there to deal with a heinous situation. So.
0: I think it's great because if you look at the the people that end up following a lot of accounts on Instagram or in social media, some of it's because they just believe in what you're presenting or they follow you because of the message. And then there are some people that actually will take action, especially if you're offering training or services or something of that nature. And I've noticed a a movement in the, the civilian side to get... First responder type of training to get training on what to do in an active uh, shooter situation, how to mm. properly carry a weapon and fire a weapon, and those types of cir- uh, circumstances. Yeah. I mean, some some of it goes, you know, really far, and and the likelihood, hopefully, of something really bad happening, is very limited. And and, and you're you guys talking about like London in that situation? It's a it's really amazing how much has happened in a short period of time. Because when you look at the history, there has always been the threat there. There's always been incidents, but the ramp up has actually happened. And I think that's where the situational awareness and the and the understanding and, and uh, skill sets are going to be needed now going forward.
1: Absolutely. And I think there is a lot of work that goes into training the public to get this stuff done and try, like driving those points home. But I guarantee the second you hear a story of like something you did, you know, changed the outcome for somebody's life in a positive way, you know, it was all worth it, especially because there is this big movement to train children on techniques and like design devices that specifically fit like these tourniquets, for example, uh, lower diameter arms and stuff. And if you hear like an after action report on a pediatric applying a tourniquet or something like that, for example... I mean, you were instrumental in in making that happen, like, man, it was all worth it, you know, at that point.
0: In a lot of cases, you guys are not just helping the service members, because you just brought up a good point. I mean, when you're on the battlefield, there's going to be casualties that's going to take place from the civilians that are even involved.
2: Absolutely. So I will touch on uh, Robert, just because you brought it up earlier, and we didn't cover it uh, very well. Um, A lot of the questions we get on our Instagram, and I'm sure you get all the time, is people wanting to go into pararescue, what can they do to prepare, what are they looking, what are they getting themselves into, so every selection course is different for every uh, specialty out there. For pararescue specifically, what the determining factor, making it through indoc or not, is going to be their water confidence. Um, I didn't see anybody quit anywhere other than the pool, and Mm -hmm. it was pretty incredible, like my team started with 120, and 14 of us graduated, and that is all water-based. It's very specifically being uncomfortable, holding your breath underwater constantly. Um, so for your listeners that are looking to get into pararescue, my advice is get in the pool. Absolutely. That's, uh, that's pretty much and, it.
1: And something that I kind of want to point out, its I'm, I'm tying back into the medical side of things, but – you know, in, for seal, for buds, for example, you know, they, one of the hardest things out here, are the guys that, that make it through was the hypothermia aspect of it, being in that cold water and having to just be there, you know? Right. And then for us, it's being underwater, you know, and remaining calm while our toxic, like our toxic level builds up and it starts putting stress on our, our organs, our brain, and we have to yeah. remain calm in that, and which is really ironic is... In the lethal triad, you know, the, um, the lethal triad, so you have hypothermia, coagulopathy, and acidosis. Hypothermia and acidosis, you know, there's two of the things that we experience in a controlled environment, but they push you right to that level, you know, so you know, especially as a medic, like, okay, this is, this is what it's like being hypothermic. You know, this is what it's like being under like an acidotic, in an acidotic state and having to stay calm. You know, um, I just think it's it's pretty ironic how those two match up.
0: Well, you think about the training that and what the necessity of that is. I mean, again, if you've not gone through that training, you've not tested your capabilities when that trauma happens and you're having to actually act upon it. The last thing I want is I'm having, you know, needing the rescue from you guys is for you to all of a sudden go into a panic mode and I'm having to save your life, you know, and carry you out yeah. of the situation. That's not good. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, good points, though. I mean, and I think that we've talked about this a lot in previous podcast episodes about different types of training. Because, you know, we get uh, individuals that are under the age of 18 that are listening Mm -hmm. to the podcast and wanting to know what type of training do I need to go to. I'm very interested in becoming this. And some of it's because they they have this um, uh, viewpoint of the soft community or of specific career fields within the military. And um, a lot of it is mental. You know, a lot of what we we describe back to them is getting yourself mentally prepared because your body can handle a lot more than what you think you're capable of. But your brain is where you got to start focusing on is that you've got to get a right mental focus. Right.
2: Right. And I I, people might disagree with what I'm about to say, but I wholeheartedly believe it. (laughs) Is that if you can make it through one of the tough military schools, you could probably make it through all of them. And I think that is just because they're looking for a certain type of individual with that certain type of mindset, which is I'm never going to quit. I will do whatever they tell me because that's what's required of me. And and that's, that's exactly what they're looking for. And if you can do that in any aspect, you can do that in all aspects. Well, I, I believe that.
0: Mike but, led the, uh, uh, the SF score or was part of that there in uh, JFK North Carolina. So Mike.
3: No, I, I was, he just said it. I, I think, um, you know, Sean, don't quit. I mean, that's the only thing you need to know. I, if you if you're preparing your training, I tell people, you know, get comfortable being, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, and, and and once you're used to that, and you realize that it, it's I mean, one, it's unlikely that you're gonna die in any of this, in this training. Yeah. Right. I mean, there are people yeah. right there. Now it happens. I mean, we yeah. lost we lost those three rangers in in uh in the swamps in Florida several years ago. Uh, implemented some risk mitigation measures down there to, 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 to fix that. We do lose guys in dive school. Um, we lose guys in, in, in real-world missions in, in both free fall and, and diving. We lose guys in a shoot house occasionally when something goes wrong. Um, but it, it's, it's very unlikely across the, the years we've been training and the number of people we put through these courses uh, that, that you're going to die in that. And, and if you just realize that, it's not going to be fatal. Um, it, it's going to be uncomfortable. And 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 don't quit. Uh, you know, right. I, I yeah. think yeah. I think that most most people today, not just kids. I know we're talking about kids asking for that. You know what they need to do to train and prepare. But most people want a quick answer. They want you know, hey, what's this one? You know, this this yeah. golden ticket that exactly. I can get that's gonna yep. that's gonna get me all the way to the end. Yeah. And it's not, man. It's a long pipeline. Uh, and throughout that pipeline, it is going to suck. Yeah. It doesn't matter Every which day. of the <laughs> which of the branches you're going into, which soft you know um, specialty you're going into every one of them suck at some point and you just yeah. got to you've got to embrace that uh, and 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 that's why you're there i mean if you're the, the kind of people that we we you know tend to gravitate into that that kind of thing that's what you're looking for and just get comfortable being uncomfortable
1: yeah we try. Yeah, about- and and mike i want to capitalize on, on what you're saying is like you know embrace the suck is like a term that a lot of people like to to use and I'm I'm very cynical towards people who broadcast how they like embrace this stuff. You know, yeah, it's like yeah, most people you, don't. When it's when it's actually time to go through something extremely difficult, you're probably not going to be worried about telling other people about it. Right. Nope. And and we recently in training we had a, a buddy who jumped out double back static line, and he had his I guess the Packers had left about 14 inches of slack before they had put it in in the last retainer band stove, and the lines wrapped around his main closing flap, and it caused a line over in his main canopy. He does his cutaway procedures, and then his his skyhook pulls out his reserve, but because his his lines were wrapped around his main closing flap, his main is still in trail, and now it's entangled with his reserve. Yeah, of course. And he Perfect was, he storm. It just... It never happened. Right. I mean, it just doesn't but that mindset that has been driven home from day one, that he has gone he's gone through a lot of difficult situations. You know, he's not he's not quit. Now he's saving his life and he has the mental fortitude to do it. Because yeah, he, he has the rest of his life to do. You know, he's three thousand feet when it happens and yeah. zero
3: feet when it's over. It, I'm, gonna, it. I'm gonna use that, Robert, to segue into something else. So there there's I mean, all he, Robert knows this. My my graduate research and everything is in really grounded in flow theory and motivation theory. Hey. And and if you if you read anything by Mikhail sent me high who who studied this Uh, theory motivation really looking for the the meaning of life and the meaning of happiness how people find optimal experiences what the study goes into is is how people get in the zone right he studies athletes he studies mountain climbers studies a lot of different people Uh, and the book i just picked up was a recommendation from a a friend of mine called the rise of superman And, and rise of superman studies action and adventure athletes and and you know it talks about really great um Big wave surfers. I mean, people mm. who surf jaws and people who have surfed uh, the Millennial Wave off the off the coast of California. Um, it, it, it's 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 these people who put themselves into these situations where everything going on around them could possibly go wrong. Mike, I I hope you don't edit this part, Rob. He like might have this. accidentally just <laughs> muted himself or something. <laughs> this is a good
0: part. <laughs> Mike, should
1: we start making fun of him again? <laughs>
0: Uh he can't see or hear us. I guess yeah. he must be. Uh, he must be trying to fix it. Wow, it must have froze up on his end. Oh uh, yeah, which is odd because yeah, to...
1: no. But I can. I I absolutely agree with what he's saying. And like, there's a book. Um, it's called "Into a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day," and it's it's back in I think it's Second Kings in the Bible. It's a story about um, Benaniah who it was like one of David's bodyguards and this this guy's just like walking through a town one day and it's snowing and he looks he looks down into this pit and there's a lion in there. And he jumps in there and kills the lion with his hands. And it's just like he did that to show the power of his king. He was like, I'm one of the king's bodyguards and I can deal with that situation. And that's what these pro surfers, you know, these people who are who are phenomenal in a certain sport trade whatever it is they seek those stages to where they can be the best where they can go into those situations that seem impossible but because of you know what they believe and what they think and their training that's the only place they want to be to show it's real you yeah. know it's amazing
0: yeah i i, I totally agree i think what you said sean about whether or not an individual could probably go through all the different types of training and if they've gone through one and and mastered that i I definitely agree too because when you just start seeing the the uh, mental makeup of those individuals you can see kind of a similar theme that's going across all the different branches for the most part and how they approach life how they approach things and there are there are a lot of accounts, and I think you guys hit on it, where people always make it seem as though they love the suck and they love to live in it. But the reality is it's called the suck for a reason. And yeah, uh, yeah. and when it comes to, you know, we talk, I have kids that contact me all the time about rangers, as a matter of fact. And, and one of the things that uh, I try to explain to them is that once you've gone through the training, and it's pretty much anything within the soft community, uh, and anything high speed within the military. Once you've gone through that training, you earn that every day. It's not like yeah. it's a one and done. You don't get to go to the, you know, to the top, and all of a sudden you get that beret, or you get that tab, or you get whatever, and that's it. From that point on, you have to keep it. You know, so mm-hmm. uh, it requires you to, to to work at it every day. Right. See if I can yeah,
2: it it is a lifestyle. You know, these jobs. That we do every day. It's not a job. It's not a nine-to-five job. It's truly a lifestyle that we're living. And uh, I'm very proud to be in, in this lifestyle. I know you guys are. And um, it makes us who we are, truly, I think.
0: Yeah, we uh, we were just having fun picking at you, though, sitting there working on your, your uh, desktop there, Mike. Well... We were talking oh, yeah. away at you, sure. calling all kinds of names. Brian was flexing, trying I, to show you I his bicep. Yeah, I
1: was flexing, trying to get your attention. <laughs> <Yeah>. and, <laughs> and I tried to finish the deep stuff you were talking about. I hope bad. I hope he did. What where I was trust. going was
3: with was was when these guys, these big wave surfers, anyway, or I mean, it could be anything. It could be base jumpers. He says a lot of a lot of different things, but when these guys are actually in the zone, they put themselves into into really dangerous, um, you know, life threatening situations. And when it happens, when they fall thirty-five feet from the top of a wave, um, when when a base jumper experiences, you know, a line over or something, and now he's in a critical spin that he can't get out of, that is when these people are really most alive. That's yeah. uh, they, they they the sensation is everything goes into slow motion, time almost stops. They they re, they they talk in great detail how they can see their buddies on the periphery and how how afraid they are, but they're not. I mean, it, at that point, it, it's just the ultimate level of focus, right. um, and, and every one of the stories so far, at least in the Rise of Superman, these guys, um, they, they, they live, unless, you know, there's there are occasional catastrophic thing, but going back to, to the example of your buddy who had, you know, the problem in free fall, whereas his, his mane was still entangled with his reserve, you know, you say you've got the rest of your life to save your life, but... I, that, I mean i've had a cutaway in free fall you know i, I mean i know exactly what that feels like and in looking back on it people who watch that from the outside are the ones who are really experiencing fear uh, mm. you're you're so focused on the task and from our perspective you know and a lot of extreme athletes they do the same thing the the preparation and the training that goes into it just to get to those points i, I think is i mean, is key but you just it, it's it's just i think it's fascinating people look for that People all over, I mean, their lives are trying to find that level of, of engagement with, with something. And it's it's really rare unless you push yourself to, to those uncomfortable levels.
0: Well, you yeah. don't have time, much time to think. You have to react. I mean, when you're in that type of Absolutely. situation, you have seconds, not minutes, not moments, not years. You can't make the wrong decision or it could cost you your life. And I think that's what you guys are talking about in your profession as well, too, that – you apply it daily. You have to keep uh, honing in on your skills. And then not only that, but when it's uh, the situation where you have to react, you can't think. You have to just do what yeah. you know what to, uh, to do. And, and you go into that mode, I think like uh, Mike is talking about, where you zero in and everything else becomes very yeah. slow motion. And and it's just doing what you know what to do. You know.
1: Yeah, and I think we are hitting on one of the hallmarks of special operations right there is that – in your worst scenario, you've ever experienced, you you get these accounts of people slowing down, you know, being able to take a breath and deal with their problems, and that is supernatural in my opinion. It is. It's an amazing thing that, like on paper, this is the worst thing that person's ever experienced, but then there's a detail like report of how they dealt with it, you know, and they were they were keeping they were living in the red, you know, they were focused, they were on point. But they did not let panic or just this human condition like, take over them. You know, they, they dealt with it, and they effectively moved out of it.
0: How the hell do I transition out of this? So, I mean, this is good stuff. <laughs> Actually, there's a whole podcast that you could do on this type of – You know, We Absolutely. already had one a few weeks. I don't weeks. know what
1: you're going to name the podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, there's a whole thing on resiliency and stuff like that that we've done. But there's a mindset piece that we can continue doing and a theme that we can continue rolling on. I think what I need to do is have you guys come back, and we'll pick another theme and another topic because it's very obvious you guys can think outside of just your one MOS and your one perspective and all of that. Um, that's that's very key. We, we could
1: transition really well on what you just said, think outside of our MOS. Oh, Sean yeah. And I have a, have a passion about that. Sean, you want to take it up on the education piece that we've been talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I was going to leave this for our final thoughts,
2: uh, since well then know, roll podcast. us roll
0: us out then take us out. All
2: right. Well, <laughs> so Brian and I, uh, we're both we're both young guys here. We came in not having gone to college, but what we've done since we've been in is really discover um, a desire for for learning for academia, and we have used the programs that are available to us to earn our bachelor's degrees while we've been active duty. And I think that there are a lot of programs out there that veterans aren't um, using to their full capacity, and it's it's honestly somewhat frustrating for me because my teammates they want um, they say they want to go to school get their degree or whatever, but they either get stuck up with the red tape of the bureaucracy that is uh, you know the military's programs or. Or they just get frustrated with the process in general and they're not using those programs. So what I wanted to touch on was if you're in the military now, if you're a veteran, make sure you're using the programs that are available to you to their full capacity. Yeah. Absolutely. And to caveat on that, like
1: I'm, I'm done my bachelor's degree in two weeks. And I'm separating from the military in October and now I have a GI Bill that I can use. Like i found what I like now. I love medicine. I love helping people in that capacity. And now I have paid for school to use like gra- in a graduate capacity. That's, that's awesome. And I can tell you like I've, I've been able to travel. I've been playing like the pan- – there's, there's other things I've been able to do amidst my studies. You know, you have to use time as like – you have to treat it. Even though the military doesn't really treat time as the valuable resource it is to the individual. Like if you are in the military, you need to do that. You need to realize that your time is precious and the military has some awesome opportunities that you need to seize. like – and Sean and I see the biggest sticking point being enrolling because yeah. a lot of these schools build processes around the civilian enrolling but not the military person. And they're, they're, you will – like when I was enrolling in Kaplan University is where I'm going. Different school of thought. <laughs> mm-hmm. they, they like had no idea what I was talking about when I was bringing up programs, tuition assistance. But it was persistence in it. It was just constantly calling, talking, like getting other people involved to talk on my behalf. And I got into the place that I wanted to be education-wise. You know, and yeah, if I can just leave one thing with people in the military right now to really help their transition is just seize those programs that are available to you right now. Educate yourself with the funds so then you can use that GI Bill afterwards you yeah, know and even if you stop your education right there using just tuition assistance yeah guess what you have education for your kid now
0: yeah you know? You know, we just talked about you know how the soft community approaches things and the mindset and it's all mental and and understanding how things slow down and all of that but the when you start talking about making the transition and that's kind of how we're closing out too is that myself, I can speak for myself, in the military, it took me nine years to get a bachelor's degree in the military. I did it by going to school at night. I did it by going to school on the weekends. I had to break it up. I had pauses for multiple years because I couldn't do it every week. I couldn't do it all the time. There were times I had to give up money that I had developed towards a a training program because I had to go Mm -hmm. to the field or I had to go to a certain military school. You know what? Persistence, too. Don't give up. If that's your goal yeah. and that's your passion, then yeah, take advantage of the resources, but don't use it as an excuse. Everybody has exactly. too many to- too many excuses along the way, and um, life's too short. You know, find your yeah. passion and get after True. it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Robert, that, that goes back to what I said earlier, get comfortable being uncomfortable, because you know, you're know you going to spend a lot of time outside of work. Well, you spend a lot of time at work, but you're going to spend a lot of time outside of work if you're pursuing your education, completing that, working on papers, working on you know what whatever is going on for the class. I did the same thing that, that you guys did, and I finished my bachelor's while I was in service um, so that I could use my, my GI Bill afterwards, but that required a lot of time that I was giving up uh, at home, at night, outside of the office, or outside of you know training with the teams, to, to, to get that done and something I always tried to impart on guys that worked for me later was that man this education is the most important thing you can do the, the opportunities that we give you in the military um, when I was younger Robert you're, you're the same way we had 75% tuition assistance we had to pay 25% of of our tuition assistance um, at least in the army not there anymore it's hundred percent tuition assistance so yeah all you have to do is put in that time and, and do the work, and it's not that hard to do. It's time consuming, but to do it one class at a time and to leave the service with a bachelor's degree, you'll be so much further ahead of Absolutely. many of your peers coming out of the military. And again, you know, just like you said, Brian, you can take you can take that GI Bill and apply it towards grad school. That's what I did, um, and it, it makes things transition wise so much easier. But but really, you know, a lot of guys will kind of balk at that because hey, for enlisted folks, we don't we don't expect you. To have an education, uh-huh. right? Um, uh-huh. but when you start, if you do stay in and you and you, you start performing at higher and higher ranks, um, you're gonna work with people who are 06s, 07s. I I was a sergeant major for a two-star. Um, these guys have multiple master's degrees and they expect mm-hmm. you to to be able to contribute to their organization. If you can't read and write at the level of somebody with a with a graduate degree, you're not gonna be um, I mean you're gonna left behind. Left behind. Yeah.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four M-I-L, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free, and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss vision lenses. Use the code mentors for mil or Mentors4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at SkeletonOptics.com and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.